0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books, and this week I'm happy to say that we have Amar Valerio Jimenez on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, River of Hope, Forging Identity and Nation in the Rio Grande Borderlands. Uh, This is a much-anticipated book, I can tell you that. Um, I used to teach with Amar, and I I enjoyed hearing him talk about it while it was in production, and I'm so happy to see it in my hand. I've read it. It's terrific. I hope everybody goes out and buys it. So, the first thing I want to say is, Amar, thank you very much for writing the book.
1: Well, thank you for this opportunity to, to speak with you.
0: Absolutely, and welcome to the show. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Um, well, um, so I'm originally from the South Texas um, border region, where um, where this book takes place. Um, that's part of the reason I wrote the book, and we'll, we'll get to that later. Mm-hmm. Um, I was born in Mexico. Um, my dad is um, an American citizen. My mom's a Mexican citizen. I lived in Mexico for uh, first um, six years of my life. Um, and then um, we um, moved to Texas, and so um, I grew up in the South Texas region um, in several several cities uh, in the South Texas region. But the whole time I was uh, growing up, I had relatives in Mexico uh, since my mom was from there. and My dad was were, were from both had relatives in Mexico, so we would go back and forth a lot. Um, and one of the things I I. I um, realized when I was growing up is that even though, you know, the South Texas border region where I grew up is predominantly Mexican-American, uh, not all Mexican-Americans have the the kind of um, relationship with the border as I do um, or as my family did. Uh, Many of them have have um, have very do not cross the border very often, and obviously this has changed now because of all the drug violence and so forth. That very fewer people cross you know on a weekly basis or or a monthly basis. But when I was growing up, people would cross a lot, and so I I did, but not everyone did. And so I started noticing that there were there were these differences between, say, recent Mexican immigrants and Mexican Americans who had been, lived in Texas for a long time and who who were you know um, ninth generation or you know. Second generation or third generation or what, you know what have you, um, but anyway, uh, and so I grew up there, um, went to high school there, and then went to college in uh, in Massachusetts, um, and that was one of the, I guess one of the one of the reasons that I started thinking about the place where I grew up also because when I went off to college, um, you know, college is a learning experience and it really um, opens your eyes to a lot of things, and especially if you're going you know, to such a different kind of cultural and uh, geographical environment as, you know, South Texas to uh, Massachusetts uh, to, uh, you know, to Cambridge. Um, and so one of the things that I realized was that, you know, when I was growing up in South Texas, um, even though, so so we think of Mexican-Americans in the U.S. as being uh, an ethnic minority population. In South Texas, they're the majority population. There is... Um, counties that where I grew up that were, you know, 80% Mexican-American mm-hmm. or, you know, some of them are 95% Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. So when I grew up, it wasn't unusual for me to see judges, to see doctors, lawyers, uh, principals, everyone was Mexican-American, you know, fire, fire chiefs, um, you know, police officers. Um, so that wasn't unusual. But when I left, you know, uh, when I went to Massachusetts, all of a sudden, I could see that I was an ethnic minority. Um mm-hmm. uh, And not only in, you know, numerical numbers, but also just in the way people sort of interacted with you and so forth. And so that was, you know, that got me thinking about, you know, the place where I grew up. And then I started, um, you know, I was an engineering major as as an undergrad, actually. uh, Or I I started as an engineering major and then became interested in history and politics and so forth. And in the the humanities, um, I I went to school at MIT. And we have to take one undergraduate um, as, an under, as undergraduates. We have to take one humanities course a semester. master. <laughs> and mm-hmm. They call everything that's not engineering or basically STEM uh, humanities. Yeah. <laughs> so well, I was lucky, and I took a I took a class with um, a very um, a great professor, uh, Marjorie Resnick, in Spanish literature, and mainly because um, uh, we all get fresh you know first year advisors, and my roommate at the time was also Mexican American from uh, from uh, Fort Worth. And you know, it was um, Marjorie Resnick was her, was his um, um, freshman advisor, and she wanted she was, she wanted to take um, she wanted to have some uh, native Spanish speakers in her class, in her literature class, Spanish mm-hmm. literature. So there was about fifteen students, and I'll, I'll make this brief, but it, it's you know, it's it's a sort of a defining moment in my life. Um, and half of the students were from Latin America, you know, undergraduates from Chile, Argentina, so mm-hmm. often, and then half were from the U.S. And um, and the students from Latin America had a very sharp critique of U.S. U.S. Uh, diplomacy and U.S. policies, and it was the first time I would heard that kind of critique because I grew up in a conservative, politically conservative environment in South Texas. Even though I went to public schools, you didn't you didn't hear that critique, um, and so I was really sort of um, shocked. Um, and eventually, at the end of the class, I asked professor like if she could um, recommend another class for me and she did and she recommended a class called Intellectuals and Social Change that was co taught by an English professor, Louis Kampf, and a linguistics professor that I had never heard of, but his name's Noam Chomsky. <laughs> and and that class basically sort of changed my life.
0: Um just <laughs> um, you, you were probably the first person to come to a class with Noam Chomsky without any sorts of uh I had no oh, pre preconception. Yeah, I had no idea.
1: <laughs> and once I was in the class, I thought, oh, oh my God! You know, like I, I just, you know, I learned more about him. And that class actually was really different because there was about twenty five students in the class, and there was a lot of graduate students, you know, international graduate students. Mm-hmm. And I had never been in a class with international graduate students. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, and after that I sort of i think i i I had realized like I'm not going to be an engineer for the rest of my life and mm-hmm. I ended up double majoring i I did a, a degree in humanities they called it humanities um, and I met you know anthropologist and political scientist and so forth and so I started realizing like okay, there's a lot of things I don't know and there's a lot of things I don't know about actually the region where I grew up because i i would i wrote some research papers for uh, you know, for classes, for history classes, or political science classes, on South Texas, and then I realized, like this, this history that I'm actually learning about in Massachusetts, I never knew when I was in South Texas. Why didn't I know that? So that was um, that got me thinking about the role of history, the role of um, education, public education, really. Um, and it got me, it got me very interested in in pursuing sort of. Um, a, a career outside of engineering. Um, I graduated, I went to work, I worked for five years as an engineer, as an electrical engineer back in Texas, and I basically did volunteer work um, after after school and I took some classes, took some engineering classes just to make sure, do I really, you know, do I really want to leave this? And I took a, a sociology class, I took a history class, and at the time, you know, a very, um, a very defining book came out um, by David Montejano, um, Anglos and Mexicans in the Making of Texas, and and that book basically also sort of made me realize, okay, this is really what I want to do, um, and so I applied to grad school, went to UCLA, went to work at George Sanchez, and um, and decided I'm going to do I'm going to write history about that history that I learned about in, in, in you know in, at MIT mm-hmm. and you know at Cambridge um, that. Should have been taught in public schools, and it wasn't. And so I'm going to learn about that, and um, and that's, that's 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 sort of the or that's sort of the, the somewhat of the origins of the book.
0: So it's sort of a voyage of self discovery
1: in a way. It was. It was definitely. And you know, pe- people say that that books are always written about you know something the author has some sort of. Um, um, you know, interest and there's some, there's some sort of link, you know, not always as, as, as much of a self discovery as mine, but, but, in, but, it, but usually there's some sort of link. Mm-hmm. And in my case, there was definitely a very, a very strong link. Um, so I, I wrote the book. I, I, uh, worked uh, in California for a while. I, um, had my first job was at uh, Cal State Long Beach, um, and then moved to university of Iowa. Mm-hmm. That's where I met you. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm an associate professor there at the, in the history department. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, looking forward to, you know. Um, writing the second book.
0: <laughs> <That's awful. laughs> yeah. yeah, the second book. Boy, that second book. The, um, but, you know, one thing I found fascinating about this particular, uh, the topic is how multilayered the history is. I mean, I, I come from a place that is, I won't call it homogenous, but um, but pretty much the white people came and killed the Indians and that was more or less it. And then the black people came and, and that, I, that's right. the story. I'm sure somebody who's from Kansas will say, no, that's totally wrong. But uh, it, it's not terribly multilayered. Um, but the, here we have all kinds of shifting identities. In fact, our written on a note card in front of me, one, two, three, four, five, six names that people called themselves in this area. Six different names right. that are in your book. So people are identifying with different sorts of groups and different sorts of ethnicities and religions and and states and and uh, you know sort of federal territories and 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 it's just kind of remarkable how many different identities there are in this place. Um, again, especially for someone who comes from an area which is reasonably homogenous in the United States. So let's begin the story and let's begin it in 1749. I think it's 1749, and that is the right. moment at which the rulers of what they called New Spain, which we now call Mexico, I think, decided that they were going to, uh, they were going to settle the area around the Rio Grande. Right. Go ahead and take so, it from there.
1: Sure. Um, so the this the the towns along the, the Rio Grande from Matamoros at the time was called Refugio, but all the way up to Laredo were settled uh, in 1749 by Spanish colonists um, coming from Central New Spain or Central Mexico, uh, and they were basically. Um, sort of civilian um, soldier settlers. Um, they um, the, the, the colonization of Novo Santander, which was what it was called um, at the time, was carried out in a slightly different way than what was carried out in, say, California or New Mexico. And basically because the, the Spanish crown had decided that it was too expensive to spend all this money um, funding missions, the creation of missions, and, and, you know, paying for missionaries and paying for soldiers. So, in Noah Santander, there, they were going to sort of combine the, the two things, and they were going to say, well, these civilians are going to be awful soldiers. Uh, among them, they're going to be some soldiers. And they still had a, they still tried to, 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 to establish some missions, but in Noah Sandan there, most of the missions were abysmal failures compared to, say, the California missions, or even in other parts of Texas like like San Antonio. Uh, but, you know, sometimes there the missions didn't work very well. There was a lot of tension between the missionaries and the uh, civilians. Uh, there were a few. There were some forts as well, but. The, the main thrust was a civilian population, and they were New Spain was doing this mainly in, in the in the mid eighteenth century as a sort of a defensive measure. They wanted to claim the land and they wanted to populate it with Spanish colonists um, um, in in, um, in sort of anticipation of other European powers like the French or the British or in some areas of you know, of, um, of the southwest. Um, Russian forces, um, Russian colonists coming Mm -hmm. in and and claiming the land, uh, you know, first. And so, um, you know, New Spain had claimed the land, but they actually hadn't settled it uh, with Spanish colonists. Um, And I should obviously um, say, uh, for those who might not be familiar, but obviously there was a a large Indian population. Yeah, I was going to talk about It was very very much settled. It was, you know, virgin territory. Mm -hmm. But... But when I, saw it, so when I say settled, it was settled by Spanish colonists. And these Spanish colonists were qu- quite culturally and ethnically diverse. Uh, they weren't all, you know, from Spain. Many of, them weren't, many of them were born, most of them were born in, 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 in Mexico. Um, but they were, they had, you know, uh, Indian um, background, you know, European background, as well as um, African backgrounds.
0: Mm-hmm. There was a lot of, con- there, there were, as we say, we should mention this, there were a lot of indigenous people there who had been there for right, a very yeah. long time.
1: Right, they were, you know, they had been there for for a long time, and they um, were small groups in, in 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 the South Texas border region near the Gulf, sort of where the Rio Grande empties into the Gulf of Mexico. That's the that that's the area that I'm studying, or that that's the focus of this book. Um, there was many small groups, um, not uh, as as larger groups, as, say, the Comanches or. Mm the Navajos or the Pueblos, uh, they were much smaller. Um, but they, you know, um, they interacted with one another and they were also, um, they had a sort of different kind of lifestyle than say other parts in other parts, of South, in other parts of the Southwest. Um, they tended to be hunter gatherers. Their, their communities tended to be small and they moved around a lot because they were hunter gatherers. Um, but some of these Indian groups also started interacting or, um, um, yeah, interacting with, um, uh, indigenous um, nations from other parts of Texas that were being pushed down to south and, and west yeah. by Anglo-American expansion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, that's a very good point
0: because we tend to think about uh, indigenous history as uh, more or less the uh, Europeans against the indigenous uh, people, but really it was the Europeans against the Europeans and then the indigenous people against the indigenous people and all the indigenous people against the Europeans. It was a very complicated picture.
1: Right, right, and, and the, you know the, the indigenous people, nations in South Texas uh, or in the South Texas border region, they were being pushed from both, you know, the south uh, by you know other indigenous people that were being displaced by Spanish encroachment, and then they were being in, you know displaced and uh, sort of encroached upon by um, from the north. From Texas nations or indigenous nations uh, mm-hmm. as well, and so there was a lot of um, there was a lot of uh, tension. There's a lot of interactions. There's a lot of you know battles and so forth. And it made for a particularly sort of volatile uh, period where you have certain indigenous nations that are native to to the to the Rio Grande um, uh, border area, aligning sometimes themselves with. Uh, Spanish colonists to try to fend off sort of larger nations like the Apaches or the Comanches that were much more powerful, much much better, um, were much more adaptable to you know um, uh, using um, you know European weapons and had had you know had acculturated very well mm-hmm. to uh, being horse um, you know uh, equestrian riders and so forth and, mm-hmm. and so they were they were very they were very powerful and they they also were very um, good at. Sort of um, playing one European power against another. So they would, for instance, raid um, Anglo-American settlements in Texas, and then trade some of the goods that they had stolen from them um, with Spanish colonists, and then vice versa. Um, and the 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 uh, they also took you know captives like you know so James Brooks, for instance, had has has written about a book in New Mexico and how both the indigenous uh, nations took captives as well as the Spanish colonists in. Texas that happened with certain of the larger indigenous nations like the Comanches and Apaches, but it happened less so with the indigenous nations that I study in, in the border region um, because they were smaller and they weren't they didn't have the sort of the, the population really um, but what it did mean was that um, Spanish colonists did in many cases um, capture indigenous people uh, and use them as slaves. But it yeah. didn't happen that much the other way around, at least not with the not with the native groups that were from, you know, um, uh, along the river. Uh, the Comanches and Apaches did take captives. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Now, how did the, uh, the the Spanish imperial authorities, or did the Spanish uh, imperial authorities, did they, were they able to protect these people, protect us in air quotes? <laughs> right, right.
1: Well, um Yeah, so protect, you mean the indigenous people? No, I mean,
0: I mean, I mean the people in the Villa del Norte, if that's what they're called.
1: Okay, Uh sure. And let me just explain the Villas del Norte. So the, the person who sort of was responsible for the colonization, who led the colonization of Nuevo Santander, his name is Jose, or was Jose Jose de Escandon. He was from Spain, and he was a military officer, and he decided to, to, to uh, make the colonization, um, perhaps more efficient by grouping towns, uh, establishing sort of a, a group of four towns, four groups of towns, and the northernmost towns uh, were the Villas del Norte, and mm-hmm. Villas del Norte just means the northern towns mm-hmm. of, in, the, in Nuevo Santander. Um, so um they were supposed to provide military protection the Spanish uh, government and they they tried but they weren't very effective uh, for, for various reasons the main reason is that the distances from you know central Mexico from what today would be Mexico City to the villa del Norte were, were quite large and they were it was very hard to um, send supplies of up to, up to the, that area. It was very hard to um, pay the soldiers to you know, keep them equipped. Um, and they also, in a way, they it was one of those things where the Spanish government sent the soldiers, sent the colonists out there, and then they sort of, uh, in many ways, sort of forgot about them in, in some ways, in, in the sense that they said, well, they'll take care of themselves. And when the um, local authorities would request aid, many times um, those requests were ignored they just said you know we don't we we're not gonna we're not gonna supply you know um the the guns and we're not gonna supply soldiers mm-hmm. or or horses or so forth um sometimes for valid reasons you know because the the new spain new spain's government was going through some sort of crisis but at other times because um it was sort of a distant you know um distant towns that they didn't really pay that much attention to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's sort of been a continuing sort of uh, pattern um, in, in that the people of, of this area have felt neglected by the central government for a very long time. And many times the local politics and the way um, the local residents of the area sort of react to national politics, whether it's national politics in the U.S. or national politics from uh, Mexico, uh, has a lot to do with their feeling of neglect and their feeling of resentment. Uh, and all of this started during the colonial period, or, or some of it started during the colonial period, because um, the Spanish colonial government um, failed to protect them mm-hmm. Um and many times some of the some of that failure was because um, you know like I mentioned the distance the lack of communications, but also because sometimes they would appoint sort of- um, go, uh, you know sort of military governors for a while that were not native to the region and so those those military governors, so they were m- military appointees or political appointees, um, didn't really have the interest of the region, you know, in mind. They were just interested in their own political careers, and they also wanted to leave as soon as possible. Um, so New Spain's northern frontier from Texas all the way to California and, you know, through New Mexico and Arizona, this was a place that, you know, today we think of it as, as, a, as a place that, um, that people want to go to because it's, it's warm, it's, you know, it's developed and so forth, right? But in the colonial period, it was a place that was not very um, appealing to Spanish colonists because it was very far away from most you know most areas of settlement. Uh, it was very hard to get manufactured goods. Um, there was also the, the constant threat of Indian attacks, um, and so it was a it was a place where actually soldiers even uh, who were stationed there wanted to leave. And <laughs> the, the soldiers were um, when they actually committed any kind of atrocity and they were tried for it. Sometimes their punishment was just to return to you know. California, a place Mm -hmm. like California, because that was considered, you know, the so called, like, the Siberia of, you know, of New Spain. Yeah. People did want to be there.
0: Yeah. Well, Siberia was the Siberia of Russia. So I mean I right, see what you right. mean yeah
1: I mean they did yeah. the same no, thing in Russia. Right. yeah well, the Russian historian I figured
0: you yeah would they different. did the, they did the same thing the um yeah. the people who were in this area between um roughly seventeen uh, seventeen forty nine and then the end of the Mexican revolution or Mexican war uh, Indepen- of ex independence I guess it's called uh, right. what what did they call themselves There's a word in your book called
1: vecinos is that right vecinos right yeah, What so are those people actually, Yeah. Vecinos literally just means neighbors. Uh-huh. Uh, they call themselves neighbors because it was a way of distinguishing, you know, throughout the Southwest, you know, and in other areas of Mexico, uh, people use this term, vecinos, and it mainly mainly meant sort of community members. Mm-hmm. So if you, were, if you were referred to as a vecino, you, it meant that you had been in that community, whatever community it was, for quite a long time. And so they had names like, you know, uh, when, you know, in political documents, you know, municipal, um, you know, court records and so forth, when they would identify you, they would Say you know, here is Juan Garza, or so forth. Uh, he is a vecino of, and he, they would mention what town they were from. So a vecino of uh, Camargo, or of Refugio, or Reynosa, and that meant that he had been there for for a while, and his he, he had longstanding roots there. So he, it was all, it was sort of a way of saying a resident. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and together, the different towns like the Villas del Norte, they were all they were all seen as vecinos of the Villas del Norte as well. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that um uh, my book looks at is sort of um political identity and identification of of the residents and they identify you know um one of the, the, the ways I sort of looked at this is by looking at sort of uh, the sort of concentric circle um, um, idea of um, affiliation of political affiliation um, that Peter Sons talks about in his book Boundaries uh, about the Spanish and um, French Pyrenees um, area and you know he says that most people identify first you know with their town and then with their region and then perhaps maybe with like if there's a state or you know so forth and then eventually with the, with the nation mm-hmm. but that doesn't completely explain it everything because sometimes some towns um, identify um, um, against another town or against another another group of people so he also talks about sort of um, uh, oppositional identities you know you 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 have an identity as opposed to someone else so some of the Spanish colonists for instance identified as Spanish colonists as opposed to indigenous people or a Spanish colonist as opposed to European um, you know colonists or Anglo-American colonists Um, and so the the, the people who lived in this area had various identities, and many of them, you know, just like we do today, there were multiple identities, and some of them seemed, today would seem, you know, contradictory, but at the time, it, you know, they didn't seem that contradictory to them. I mean, they had an identity as, as Christians, uh, and, uh, you know, the main the main religion there was, was, was Catholicism, mm-hmm. so they, but they didn't think of themselves as um, you know, they thought of themselves as as Catholics and as the uh, the indigenous people who were not hadn't been baptized or hadn't been converted as you know as heathens. You know, as as people, they use the term "people without reason," gente sin razón, and they they considered themselves gente de razón or people of reason. And the main um, you know dividing or the main factor is you know whether or not you had reason was whether or not you were Catholic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course that was their their view. That that was I'm not saying that's justified, but that <laughs> yeah, was clearly that's how yeah. they, they saw themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um but anyway, uh so this is a you know, a region that undergoes several conquests. You know, first the Sp- the Spanish arrive and, and conquer local local indigenous nations and then um and and they don't necessarily—it's not a, necessarily um, a complete conquest because there's certain nations that they, they can never conquer, like the Comanches and the and the Apaches that do make incursions down into this um, Rio Grande Era area. Um, and um, but you know, the beginning in, in basically the 19th century, the early 19th century, they start seeing um, European Americans arrive. Yeah uh, Anglo-Americans arrive, uh, first, you know, as, as, um, you know, as traders, um, they arrive into uh, the port that's, um, there in Matamoros. Uh, there's a very large, um, um, Anglo-American, um, uh, sort of, uh, population that are basically businessmen, uh, who trade, who basically, um, uh, establish trading, um, uh, houses with where they trade, um, between Cuba uh, New Orleans, uh, New York, and Matamoros, uh, and these are supplying sort of the northern um, um, towns, you know, from Saltillo to Monterrey to other you know major capital cities in mm-hmm. northern Mexico today. Um, and then, you know, in the mid nineteenth century, um, uh, or even before the mid nineteenth century, in, in you know in eighteen thirty in eighteen thirties, Texas breaks away from Mexico, and there's a there's a lot of tension around that. Um, the the, the area that I say the Vidas north not they weren't completely... Um, they, they, they didn't become part of Texas in 1836. Uh, they were still part of Mexico. But the Texas Revolution, the so-called Texas Revolution, a Separatist Revolution, did affect the, the towns in that um, the towns... You know, there was a lot of tension. The military, the you know, New Spain's military... Uh, actually, by this time, it was Mexico's military, did go through the towns and did abuse the residents along the way... Um, um, you know, take supplies, didn't pay for the supplies and so forth, um, and on their way to San Antonio, on the way to try to, you know, suppress the rebellion in Texas. Um, but anyway, after Texas went, gained its independence from 1836 to 1845, it was an independent republic. Um, the Villa de to remained part of Mexico and they still remain. Um, you know, sort of reporting to Mexico, and the, the citizens, the, the residents there, consider themselves Mexican citizens. Um, I, I actually jumped over a part which was, you know, Mexico gains its independence in 1821, so mm-hmm. part of what happens is these people had been Spanish colonists, and when Mexico gains its independence, they become Mexican citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, they're Mexican citizens for, you know, uh, or some of them were Mexican citizens for. You know, a little bit over 20, 20 years, uh, from 1821 to 1848. And in 1846, the U.S. Mexican War breaks out, partly over Texas, but partly over, you know, a boundary dispute, um, in southern Texas. Um, and at the end of the war, the U.S. acquires you know a large portion of northern Mexico, including now um, what today is um, you know the southern t- the southern Texas area. So some of the some of the people who live in the communities that I study end up becoming U.S. citizens. Some of them remain Mexican citizens because their towns are on the what today would be the Mexican part of the border, um, and the other other towns are on the U.S. side of the border. Some people move because their their land is actually on the on the Texas side of the border, and they start establishing towns all along the river, and so. So the 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 period from you know, immediately after eighteen forty eight is a period where you have the creation of what we today call twin cities. So the town of Brownsville, for example, which is the southern tip of Texas, was created after the U.S.-Mexican War. Uh, basically, uh, you know, right opposite of Matamoros, which was the, the mm-hmm. one of the Villas del Norte. Same thing happens in Reynosa; another town gets created a lot across the r- river. Uh, at the time, it was called Hidalgo. Uh, it's still called Hidalgo, but the major another major city there is is McAllen, um, and all and Laredo gets created. Um, I'm sorry, no Laredo gets created so it's new Laredo uh, and that's on the Mexican side because Laredo is one of the few towns that is actually uh, an old Via del Norte that ends up on the Texas side. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, and as a result of the the U.S.-Mexican war, um, the U.S. takes over this area and starts establishing municipal governments all along um, just like they do throughout New Mexico and and California and so forth. And so you have a change in jurisdiction uh, and you have a change in laws um, the, the community, as I mentioned before, is, you know, predominantly Mexican, so they become Mexican-Americans, which means that they're ethnically Mexican, but they're now American citizens, uh, and they're um, part of the population in the Southwest that, um, you know, today... Um, Mexican American activists Latino activists say um, these people didn't cross the border the border crossed them that, <laughs> line, that line comes from that that particular you know event yeah. that you know th- there's communities in California and New Mexico and Arizona and so forth where there's there's people t- alive today whose ancestors you know, basically didn't cross an international border, right? right. They were right. living in in, in with, with then New Spain, then they were then they were living in Mexico, and then all of a sudden they became they became part of the U.S. as a result of a war of conquest, as a result of the U.S.-Mexican War. Um, so they didn't come to the U.S. The U.S. came to them, mm-hmm. and that's 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 where that line comes from. Um, and so. But as a result of this 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 change in jurisdiction, now all of a sudden you have different laws. Uh, you have Eng- you know U.S. laws. You have um, you know a different a language. You know English being spoken more more widely. Uh, although in Texas, um, all you know many of the laws uh, are the laws were had had to be translated into Spanish, um, uh, at least in the in the 19th century, uh, because they wanted to make sure the population understood you know what was going on mm-hmm. and, and understood the laws. Um, but as a result of this, this change in jurisdiction, um, you also have changes. One of the things that I that I found in my in my in, you know in, in researching my book uh, that I thought was fascinating is you know the period after eighteen forty eight has been seen as a period of you know, has been described in the past in the first sort of books on Mexican Americans, you know, that came out in the sixties and seventies as a period of declension, meaning that basically Mexican Americans throughout the Southwest lost power. They lost political power, they lost economic power, they lost social power. Um, they started losing their land, um, they started losing, you know, um, they started, you know, um being um, seen as sort of criminals, as the people who are um, sort of, of the lower class, um, and Anglo-Americans in general ended up sort of supplanting them, you know, being being the, being the mayors, being the governors, and so forth. Um, but one of the things I found, and that did happen in South Texas, it happened more gradually in some counties than in others, in some areas than others, and it basically had to do with how fast the, this transition happened, how fast Mexican-Americans were displaced, had to do with whether that county or, or the city, or the, you know, the, whatever city we're talking about, how quickly that became a trade center. If it became a trade center, then it then it attracted Anglo Americans uh, in great numbers, and therefore. You know, like for instance, Brownsville, Cameron County is it's in Cameron County. They they take over Anglo Americans take over uh, Cameron County pretty quickly because Brownsville is a major trading center. Um, in neighboring Hidalgo County next door, it takes a little longer, and so Mexican Americans are able to maintain power and maintain their land a little longer. You know, into into the late 19th century. Uh, and other historians have written about that. Same thing happens in California. In L.A., they they get displaced pretty quickly. In Santa Barbara, it takes a little longer. Mm-hmm. To get, they could take it takes a little longer to get displaced. Um but anyway one of the things i found out that i that i had not um anticipated in you know when i started my research was that the changing laws also affected women in ways that um were unexpected for me at least so um in in um, in Spain and in New Spain and then in Mexico um the catholic church governed um uh, marriage and it also governed divorce and what it basically meant that marriage you could only get married if you were if you were catholic uh, and you had to get married through the church. Uh, and you really couldn't get divorced. Uh, not the way that we know about it today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could not have, you could not have an absolute divorce. You could have these things called temporary divorces, which would just allow you to, a couple to separate for a few, you know, until you worked out your differences. And then there were, there were these sort of more permanent divorces. Uh, but, and that just allowed the couple to, to live independently. Um, but they were still technically. Married, because according to Catholic Church, once you're married, you're always married in the eyes of God mm-hmm. until one of the one of the spouses died, and then only then could, you know, the the surviving spouse remarry. But if you um, even if you got a permanent divorce, which are very very hard to get, um, you could not remarry until your your you know your ex your 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 spouse um, passed away. Uh, well, what happens in um, when? the U.S. takes over, um, you know, the southern part of Texas, uh, at least for the communities that I study, right, you have people who all of a sudden become U.S. citizens, and their friends and and family members that live on the other side. So, for instance, people who are living in Brownsville now, who own land there, they become U.S. citizens all of a sudden. You know, in 1849, they're U.S. citizens. Um, Their friends and family members in Matamoros are Mexican citizens. Well, as U.S. citizens, now they can get divorced because in the 19th century most Western states and it varied across the US but most western states allowed divorce relatively easily uh, and there's a long complicated reason for that but part of it had to do with they wanted to attract uh, settlers and one way to attract settlers is to make divorce more more easy more, uh, <laughs> easier to, to obtain wow. um, they also had very easy sort of residency requirements because they wanted people to be able to move there and vote um, so it was you know it was a different kind of thing the, the strictest Divorce laws were in the south, uh, and in the northeast, there was also generally pretty good, to, pretty, pretty easy divorce or, or relatively um, um, easy divorce. But the, the 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 most sort of the laxest divorce um, you know rules were in the west. So the west had very high number of divorces, uh, divorce rates. Uh, Texas is one of those western states, and so you actually had in Texas the you know and in other parts of the of the, the, of the west. Um, This phenomenon, this pattern where people would move to Texas just to get a divorce because you could become a resident within three months uh, and then you could get a divorce. And you could get a divorce for a variety of reasons, uh, very easy reasons. So for one of of them, you could get the most common kind of divorce you could get or the most common reason you could give for getting a divorce was abandonment, meaning you just, you know, your spouse had abandoned you, had left so women who, whose husbands left and never returned could file for divorce. They had to wait for a period of three years after the the, the spouse left, um, but then they could get a divorce. Uh, and it was pretty easy to obtain because basically um, they published the divorce pr- um, you know notice in the newspaper mm-hmm. and they, they allowed a certain m- amount of time, like a month or two months to pass by. And then they had a hearing and if the husband didn't show up, which usually they didn't, uh, they had abandoned the, their wives, then they got a divorce. Um, and that meant that they could reclaim any kind of properties they had. Um, and it also meant that they could reclaim their maiden name if they wanted to. And more importantly, it meant, for the West at least, it meant that they could remarry. Uh, and it was really important for them to remarry because it's very hard. You know, it means it's very hard today to, to live as a single parent. It was, very, it was much harder, you know, in the 19th century West. Um, so they could remarry. Um, and but so so mexican Americans actually took part in this. Um, they were able to obtain divorces. Um, they could obtain divorces because in the nineteenth century, the divorce in the u s was no longer a uh, religious matter. it was a civil matter. so civil authorities um, grant granted divorces uh, civil judges. Um, so you could you could also marry through um, you know the civil authorities as well. So even if you were Catholic, you know me- most Mexican Americans in the nineteenth century were Catholic. Um, they might not be able to marry. Well, they definitely could marry through the Catholic Church or remarry through the Catholic Church once they got right. divorced. But it didn't matter because they could get married through the through a judge, through a civil authority. So they the guys divorced. Um, they could go to a, you know a judge um, and remarry. Um, and many of them remarried and then continued attending the church, and it, it didn't matter. And they would actually baptize their children and so forth. That you know, the, the priests just couldn't remarry them in the in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that happened is that Protestant churches also arrived, um, and they could marry through a Protestant church. So Protestant churches allowed divorced people to remarry. Um, but anyway, that was actually something that I thought was really interesting because it was actually, in a way, you could see it as, as a, as an opportunity for women. And it was mainly women who were taking part of, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in these, uh, of the divorce laws because men were the ones in, at least in the 19th century who were many times abandoning them. Um, you could also get, um, you know, divorced if you accuse your spouse of adultery, if you could accuse your spouse of being, you know, sort of, um, emotionally or physically abusive, um, uh, of not supporting, you know, you know, you know the, the family and so forth. But like, as I mentioned, the, the most common one was abandonment. Um, so, so it, one way to look at this, one way of interpreting this kind of change, is that women, sort of women and men, but mainly women, were able to uh, sort of escape the power, you could say, of the Catholic Church, uh, escape the power of, you know, um, of sort of uh, this sort of. What we today would call a patriarchal institution that was governed by men but had a lot of power over women and who didn 't really allow women this freedom um, to you know to leave uh, abusive or non supportive husbands. Mm-hmm. Um, or to just get their, their property back because, you know, sometimes their husbands had left them and they were, they were living on their own anywhere. They were living with their family, but they couldn't make certain decisions. They couldn't take, get their property back. Their husbands still sort of legally controlled them. And in Mexico, actually, their husbands could legally force them to move with them uh, and authorities would arrest them and actually, you know, take their wives and, you know, move their wives wherever their husbands wanted to uh, to be. Um, and, you know, this, this all... Um, basically disappeared. Um, You know, they they didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. So in a way, one of the things, going back to my book, one of the things that happens is the the change in jurisdiction that occurs, you know, after the U.S.-Mexican War allows women more opportunities. Uh, And this is something that sort of goes against this idea that the post uh, U.S.-Mexican war period is a period of declension, because for women, it is in a way, you know, because they're still, if they're part of landed families, they also lose power, they lose money, they lose land, but they gain some opportunities, and mm-hmm. one of the opportunities is more sort of personal freedom in their marital choices.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting, in a way, it's such a, it's an irony, I know you, you may have heard of the concept of a Mexican divorce, uh, it was in the 1960s, people would go to Mexico get divorced because they had very lax exactly. divorce laws.
1: Right, 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 Yeah,
0: so this is the opposite so, of this is a Texan divorce. <laughs> right,
1: well, sort of, yeah. And I mean, those, the laws in Mexico about divorce didn't, didn't change until the 20th century. Yeah, that's right. In yeah. the 19th century, it was, it was still very much governed by the Catholic Church. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I have a few quick questions. One of them involves the word, and I've heard this word a lot, you know, just sort of it, it flashes by my ear. I don't know if that's a mixed metaphor, but Tejanos. In this era, what does that mean and who is that?
1: Okay, so Tejano today means someone who's of Mexican background, or Mexican American background, but who lives in Texas. Okay. So in the 19th century, or, you know, even today, um, people refer to, say, Californios, meaning uh, in the 19th century it was Mexicans, Mexican Americans from California, uh, Nuevo Mexicanos, or people from New Mexico who were of Mexican American background, uh, or m- initially Mexican background, but, but eventually Mexican American, and once they became U.S. citizens. Same thing happened in Texas, so, um, so, Anglo Texans. You know, the term that historians use is Anglo Texans, meaning, um, and, and it's a misnomer because you know, many Anglo many people that we refer to as Anglo Texans weren't Anglo at all. You know, they were, they were from, they were just European Americans. But you know, they might have been Jewish or they might have been you know, Germans. A, a
0: lot of Germans. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. Germans, right? Yeah.
1: Right. Exactly. But but in Texas history, that we, they all sort of fall under Anglo Amer- Anglo Texans. Uh, but anyway, so. So Anglo-Texans um, are, you know, one group of people, um, um, or historians sort of group them together, even though they're not really one group, they're many mm-hmm. groups. Um, for for Mexican, Mexican-Americans living in Texas, they call them Tejanos, or Texas Mexicans is another term they used. Um, and it was, it's a way to distinguish them, you know, to sort of indicate their, their ethnic identity, as well as sort of, you know, where they live. So today we talk about, you know, Italian-Americans, you know, right, Um Japanese-Americans or whatever, Mexican-Americans. Back then, they were also saying, sort of more specifically, people who are Mexicans living in Texas are Tejanos.
0: But they're American citizens.
1: They're American citizens,
0: exactly. I see. I see. Yeah, that's interesting. I have a couple of other quick questions. Go ahead.
1: Sure. Oh, no, and I was going to say, and that identity didn't come really, really, um, it didn't happen immediately, you know, for the people that I study, it didn't happen when Texas became a republic, and Mm -hmm. it didn't happen until much later in the 19th century, where they started sort of identifying, again, sort of as an oppositional identity, um, uh, they weren't Anglo-Texans. Anglo- they weren't Mexican citizens anymore. So they started realizing, oh, we're, we're sort of, you know, we're Texas Mexicans, we're Tejanos because we're part of U- the U.S., we're living in Texas, and we're some of the laws that apply to us, some of the things that apply to us do not apply to our real- friends and relatives living in Mexico.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's interesting. So as I say, I have a couple of kind of miscellaneous questions that occurred to me while yeah. I was reading the book. One of them involves slavery, and that is, I know slavery was practice uh, in New Spain, um, w- w- were there still slaves when the, uh, the the Mexicans who were sort of caught across the border when the United States took that big chunk? Did they still have slaves and what happened to them?
1: Sure. Okay. And, so, and you're referring to the enslavement of, of African people, right? Well, it could be
0: slavery of anybody because I know they enslaved okay. Indians as well, right? Okay, sure. Yeah,
1: so uh, I'll I'll mention I'll mention the enslavement of African people because that's the one that we think about the most. Okay, Um, there were so Mexico had outlawed slavery, but it allowed slavery in certain areas. Um, So they had outlawed slavery when Mexico became uh, independent an independent nation in the eighteen twenties. But in Texas, in order to attract um, Europeans to colonize Texas, um, there was this sort of um, colonization. effort to make, to get more, to attract both European Americans as well as Americans, Anglo-Americans to Texas, they allowed slavery because many of the people moving to Texas were from the South. Uh-huh. So they allowed slavery, um, uh, uh, enslavement of Africans. Um, and so people moved to Texas, you know, people moved to San Antonio, to Austin from the South and they brought their slaves with them. Mm-hmm. So when Texas became independent, they, they, you know, they allowed slavery. And when Texas became part of the U.S., you know, they, it was a slave state, mm-hmm. um, uh, in the border region that I studied, slavery wasn't, the enslavement of African Americans wasn't really practiced that much, partly because, um, once the U.S.-Mexico border, once the Rio Grande becomes the, US, the, the border between the U.S. and Mexico, it was really easy for slaves, or African slaves to flee into Texas, into Mexico, sorry, uh-huh. and obtain their freedom. Oh, I see. So, there was, there were still some slaves, um, in San Antonio, for example, but the, the slavery, the, the, you know, sort of large-scale slavery occurred more in sort of, you know, northern parts of Texas, like in Houston and, you know, above Austin and Dallas and so forth. Uh, In East Texas, you you know, I would say. um, Less so along the border. There was a few people who would, a few um, European Americans who moved to the the border region and brought their slaves with them, but but their slaves wouldn't be there 10 years later. Mm -hmm. They would have left.
0: Was it legal to enslave um, uh, the indigenous Americans, if we can call them that?
1: No. It wasn't legal, but but it happened, yeah. and, and sort of authorities, municipal authorities, would just look the other way. So it happened a lot. And one of the things that I, I write about in my first in my first the first chapter of my book is is the way that indigenous people uh, of the region basically became part of of Spanish society. And one way is that they were they were captured as, as babies. You know, they were uh, taken from their families, and they were raised in um, you know Spanish households, um, and raised as you know. Um, uh, to be basically servants, right. uh, they're called them criados uh, or people who were raised, um, and these became these people, these indigenous uh, workers became in you know, domestic servants, or they became ranch hands, or they became, you know, um, uh, eventually they, they they would obtain their freedom as adults. Um, um, but 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 when they were young, they were they were basically, you know, um, slaves.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, another question I had was in, involved in the next two questions really involve the degree to which the the two ethnic communities, that is, uh, M- Mexican-Americans and Anglos interacted. And one involves marriage. I have to assume that most of the Anglos who were there were Protestants. And almost all of the yeah. and almost all of the Mexicans were Catholic. Did they did they intermarry and could they intermarry and how did they negotiate yes. this?
1: Right, they, they intermarried. Um, so as I mentioned, once the once it, once the area becomes part of the U.S., um, they could intermarry um, by basically going to a Protestant church that allowed uh, mixed marriages. I mean, uh, or, or um, interfaith marriages. Uh, in some cases, the, the, a spouse would convert. So they would convert to, you know, they would become a Catholic or they would become Protestant. Mm -hmm. Um, um, But in other cases, if their church didn't allow it, then they could just go get married through uh, civil authorities. Mm -hmm. They could just have a civil uh, civil wedding. And usually this kind of marriage occurred only among the elite. Um, So uh, Anglo-Americans who would arrive in Texas... Uh, would often marry sort of um, wealthy or landed um, um, into landed families so the daughters of sort of a, a, a large ranch owner uh, would get married and that was one of the ways that they obtained property um, because it was, you know, most property was already sort of allocated in a way um, and so one way to do that was to, to intermarry with the Mexican-American woman uh, but it was also a way for like um, people in business if it was an Anglo-American who was, you know, a merchant to establish, you know, basically extensive social ties because once he married into a Mexican family, um, he had all these Mexican relatives and all these not just relatives, mm-hmm. but also just connections. And so his business would thrive if you know they knew that he was married into you know to the Garzas or to the Baez or so mm-hmm. forth. Mm-hmm. These are families that these are surnames that are very common in, in South Texas.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that's fascinating. So then an- another a question about the um, two groups and the degree to which they interacted what were. Uh, I don't know what to say. Were the Anglo's ghettoized, or were the uh, Mexican Americans ghettoized? Do they live in uh, similar confines, or were they? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you. Um, so um, that's a that's a hard question to translate. But I would say that you, what you have is uh, a period in in the, in the in the you know in the in the second half of the nineteenth century where because the laws have changed, you have. Um, um, this process that you know scholars refer to as criminalization of certain kinds of cultural activities that Mexicans had been participating in for years, and all of a sudden, because there's new sort of new laws being um, sort of enacted, uh, some of their their activities are now um, criminal. Uh, one of the things, for example, that that you know um, they couldn't do necessarily anymore is play certain kinds of card games. There was a, a, a card game called Monte that was considered illegal. Sure, you know, yeah. um, so um, certain kinds of dances that were that took place, mainly among working class, were outlawed. Uh, and, you know, Mexican-Americans were still participating in it, but they were sort of participating in it sort of, you know, illegally. They were doing it, but authorities could crack down on them. Uh, another thing that was just sort of, you know, uh, restricted, I shouldn't say completely illegal, was with bathing in the rivers. They would, you know, Mexicans would bathe in the rivers, especially the the, the working class. Um, and um, after the U.S. takes over, these these um, you know this this activity is restricted, and in some cases, um, you know, restricted to certain hours or certain parts of the river only. Um, so. Um, But in terms of ghettoize, uh, you know, in terms of, like, segregation and, uh, you know, sort of housing segregation, I don't think you're going to see that right away. Um, You're obviously going to see wealthy families have... Having sort of multiple homes, they have a ranch home, for example, and then they have a home in the city in a nearby city. Uh, and their homes are probably going to be in certain in certain areas of the city, as opposed to sort of more working class areas. But it didn't mean that there was actually laws barring sort mm-hmm. of Mexican Americans from living in certain areas. That doesn't happen until much later.
0: Yeah, redlining is yeah, it's sort of a right, later thing. Right. Yeah, just just as an aside, and I don't know if you can answer this: Is the can you still see the echo of these elite? Um, Mexican American families in this area today are there? Are there famous names that can be? Oh, sure. Like oh, yeah. these guys, you know, they are like you know famous.
1: <laughs> yeah. So one of the one, one of the ones that I use in my classes, one of the most exam, famous examples is, um, so the so during spring break, a lot of students go down to Texas to South Padre Island. Yeah. Well, South Padre Island is named after um, Father Bailly, Uh and it's called. Bother Island because it was given to him. Uh, He was a a, a Spanish colonist. He was a priest. (laughs) And he he is um, his descendants, not his descendants, his Sort of, I guess the um, his nephews and nieces, right? Because you know he didn't have children. Mm-hmm. But his the, the descendants of his brothers and sisters have actually had you know filed litigation uh, to try to reclaim the the island many <laughs> years ago. Uh, and some of it was it was they were sort of partially successful actually in a way, because uh, they did prove that that the that the land was his um, initially and that it had been sort of taken under less than you know legal circumstances. But anyway, uh, when you go from Brownsville to Padre Island, you go over. This big bridge um, in uh, South Texas, the South Padre Island area, and um, there's actually a statue right at the beginning uh, or at the end of the bridge uh, for Father Ba'i um, So he's one of the famous names. So mm-hmm. Bae is a very common name. The you know are very common uh, landed families. Um, uh, de la Garza's. there's a whole slew of them uh, but it doesn't mean that all the other all descendants are are still sort of landed people. Many of them are now working yeah. class and yeah. they've lost their property and so forth
0: yeah, I just find it interesting that that kind of you know that that, that these are that these families are probably they probably are more Texan than the Texans are now they probably you know that they've been completely sure. yeah they've been sort of completely uh you know assimilated and more right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right.
1: No, exactly. I mean, you have, for instance, I mean, you know, in, in South Texas, when I was growing up, and even today, many of the Mexican American um, youth are, you know, very much integrated into sort of the high school sports scene. You know, they're football players. I was going to ask about that they're, football, they're cheerleaders and so I mean, yeah. forth. Oh, yeah, and you know, and that's much more popular. When I was growing up, it's much more popular than soccer. Yeah. Now there's more soccer. There's more, you know, uh, activity around soccer. But it also has to do with recent immigrants. So most of the people who are, or many of the people meaning the students who are participating in soccer, are going to be recent immigrants. Mm-hmm. The sort of the older Mexican-American families are still going to be very much um, sort of um, attracted to the to the American football.
0: Yeah, and that's another thing I wanted to uh, to ask about, and this is something that when, when I was growing up, I said Kansas is usually homogenous, it's not entirely, but when, when I was growing up, you know, we, we would go to areas of Kansas that had old, old uh, Mexican populations. And, you know, these guys... Um, and women, of course, they would—they had cowboy hats on and cowboy boots, and yeah, and just their name was Delgo, and that was the only difference, right. as far as I could tell. They were Kansans, um, so right. what,
1: Oh, yeah, <laughs> well, they had been there since the, you know—they probably started, you know, living in these communities, or at least their ancestors, you know, in the 19th century, you know, as a yeah. result of cattle drives from Texas. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. And I wondered how the in in this area, this borderland area, how the, those sort of really, in, um, I okay. guess, assimilated uh, Mexican Americans, how they relate to newer immigrants. Let's put it that way. Oh.
1: Sure, that's a good question. Um, one of the things that um, several historians have found, um, probably the, the best example of this, is in a book called Walls and Mirrors by David Gutierrez, um, is that there's a lot of. He, he explains in this book why why there's tension between Mexican Americans and Mexican immigrants, um, and. Um, There's tension because Mexican-Americans consider themselves U.S. citizens. Um, They've lived in the U.S. for quite a long time. Some of them don't even speak Spanish anymore. Um, And when Mexican immigrants arrive, um, there's, you know, in some cases, uh, especially among the working class, there's competition. Then there's been competition over jobs, over housing, and so forth. But more importantly, over the years, um, let's say in the early 20th century, for example, there were certain civil rights organizations, the Mexican-American civil rights organizations, like uh, the most prominent one being the League of Latin American, of United Latin American Citizens, LULAC, um, that actually took a stand to exclude Mexican immigrants from their organization. Uh, today they don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, they say, actually wow. threw them out. They, at their founding Congress, they threw them out. They threw out the Mexican immigrants and they said, we don't want you in our organization. Because basically they saw, LULAC members and Mexican-Americans saw, uh, Mexican immigrants as giving them a bad name, as you know, um, uh, being um, the people who are you know poor because they're they're recent immigrants who didn't speak Spanish, who had sort of more Mexican traditions than than American traditions, and for Mexican Americans who wanted to fit in in the early 20th century or even today, you know, those who were just recently arrived were 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 seen you know um, as the sort of the the norm, and so for people who aren't Mexican-American, it's very hard for, say, someone who's of Italian-American background or, you know, whatever European-American background to be able to tell the difference between a Mexican-American and a Mexican immigrant. Um, yeah. You definitely can't tell, you know, many times just when they speak or whatever. It's it's, it's this little subtleties that you, you know, where you can sort of tell. Um, and so because of that, you know the sort of non-Mexican community would think of all of them as recent Mexican immigrants, and you know LULAC members in the early 20th century, and today even Mexican Americans see want, want to distance themselves in some cases from recent immigrants because they don't want to be be sort of grouped together with them um, because in some cases they're poor, they you know they don't speak English as well, and so forth. Whatever you whatever have whatever sort of negative characteristic they you know Mexican Americans might might ascribe to them, um, but it's the same thing among other, other immigrants. So, you, yeah. know, you know, yeah. when I was taught in California and, and so in Southern California, you know, um, Chinese immigrants or Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans, they had, you know, sort of, uh, you know very negative terms to uh, to that they use to refer to recent immigrants recent chinese immigrants because they they didn 't want to be associated with them for the same reason they don 't want they want to see themselves as chinese americans and and many of them have been in California for you know many many generations right since the nineteenth century and they have very little in common. Besides, in some cases, besides sort of their ethnic background with recent Chinese immigrants, Mm because these Chinese Americans, you know, aren't going to speak Chinese anymore, Mm -hmm. just like Mexican Americans don't don't speak Spanish anymore. Mm -hmm. I just find all that fascinating because you you want
0: to say like they and I know about this in the Korean community and the Russian community, the same thing. And they do have what I would call you can't really call it an ethnic slur because they're both of the same ethnicity, but they have these names for them that are not terribly polite. Oh no, and
1: it's very vicious, and you know, and I mean, and it it has to do with, I mean, for the Mexican Americans and for other communities, it also has to do with voting rights also, also, right? Because in some cases, like in the 19th century, there were certain counties where, you know, along the border, where a losing politi- If a politician lost an election, they would blame it on yes. uh, Mexican immigrants who had voted illegally. And they, when they made these statements, they would sort of accuse the entire Mexican community of being illegal voters. So it really put Mexican Americans in a very sort of, you know, uh, um, difficult situation because they thought well we're mexican americans we're citizens we want to vote and yet um these you know this, these politicians are accusing us of not being voters uh, of not being you know legal voters mm-hmm. um, in the 19th century, there was also tension between Mexican-Americans and Mexican immigrants over um, cattle theft, there was a lot of, you know, theft, I mean, cattle was very prized in the 19th century in, in Texas, and because of the communities along the border, it was very easy to steal on one side of the border, whether in Mexico or the U.S., and then take the cattle over to the other side and sell it. Well, Mexican immigrants, in some cases, or just Mexican nationals, I should say, were crossing the border, stealing, and then going back into Mexico. And so there was tension between Mexican-Americans and Mexican immigrants over that Hmm. there was tensions over you know different conflicts so for instance during the civil war um texas since it was a slave state had a confederate draft so there's actually many mexican americans who served in the confederate army but there was also mexican americans who, who who served in the union army uh and established union union you know Union uh, army troops uh, in South Texas, uh-huh. and the Union actually recruited. Both the Confederacy and the Union recruited on both sides of the border. And even though in the 19th century, you know, the citizenship of Mexican Americans was questioned, you know, before the Civil War and after the Civil War. During the Civil War, military recruiters didn't care. They were like, you know, we don't care whether you're Mexican American, Mexican Mexican national. If you want to, you want to fight in our, you know, in our on our side, we'll we'll take you. Yeah. Uh, so they recruited on both sides. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really thank you for it. It's a fascinating book. Today we've been talking to uh, Omar Valerio Jimenez about his book, River of Hope, Forging Identity and Nation in the Rio Grande Borderlands. So, um, Omar, let me uh, ask our traditional final question before we close the interview on new books on the New Books Network, and that is, what what are you working on now?
1: Sure. So my next book is is a, um, called Remembering Conquest, and it's about the... the um, US Mexican War it's about history and memory of the US Mexican War and how uh Mexican American activists uh Chicano activists have used the memory of the US Mexican War as a as a sort of motivation for civil rights struggles uh throughout the, the beginning of the 19th century but also into the 20th century how it's remembered how it's sort of used as a sort of a motivating um sort of um uh organizing tool um and how basically people uh, remember a, a war that they didn't actually experience, obviously, but their community experienced, uh, and how do they remember the promises that you know of the treaty that ended the war, the Treaty of Laupiriagul, to um, uh, press for their civil rights?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds fascinating, and I hope you'll come back on the show when you're done with it. Uh, I would be happy. To. <laughs> okay, good. <So> <sighs> opportunity. All right, all right. Um, take care, Amar.
1: Okay, bye.